arts programs have come in for quite a public beating over the last decade. Beginning with the Great Recession, left and right converged on the idea that this kind of learning that occurs in fields like English, philosophy, art, as well as other humanities and social sciences are at best a waste of time. Some on the right, responding to the woke revolution, go further, arguing that liberal arts are basically the home office of intersectional criticism of American society and a big net negative for both the workforce and social cohesion. There's a little truth in these ideas. Watered down and politicized liberal arts, humanities, and social science education can be a raw deal economically and socially. However, an argument against abuse is not an argument against use. As I've noted before on this podcast and in reports and articles that you can find in the show notes, employer surveys and empirical data tell a very different story. What our economy increasingly needs are people with strong, humane skills, the capacity to relate well to other people, whether workers, clients, or customers. Inadequate preparation in this domain of so-called soft or non-cognitive skills impairs innovation, communications, and business performance. That's why employers highlight the demand for these skills when they talk about what's missing in the workforce. Good liberal arts education that focuses on careful reading, listening, and thinking can help people develop these capacities, along with improved ability for imagining solutions to complex problems and working in teams. The added bonus is that liberal arts content can also lead to a greater appreciation for what it means to be a participant in and contributor to life in a democratic society. Properly done, liberal arts education is a win-win-win. On this episode of Hardly Working, I'm joined by Ted Hadzi-Antich, a professor at Austin Community College and a former student at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, one of the nation's leading liberal arts programs. Ted has a lot of experience with teaching the liberal arts and learning them, and he joined us to talk about his journey, the role the great books played in it, and how he and his allies in Austin and around the country are working to make the great books great again. Ted Hajiadij, thank you for joining us on Hardly Working. Thanks for having me, Brad. I appreciate being here. It's great. And I know that you're in Austin, Texas, so you have recently come through an extraordinary event down there with the weather and freezing temperatures. And I hope that didn't inconvenience you and your, your family too much. but. I know that it delayed this conversation a little bit. We're just glad to have you on to talk about this really important idea that you're pursuing on the relationship between primary text style education and community college education, which which are not ideas that immediately mesh in the minds of many people. But I share your interest in this area, and I wanted to have you talk about that. But before we do that, I always like to ask people on Hardly Working to talk about themselves, because I think it's really important to understand what's the context behind the person that's led to the career choices or vocational path or current activity. So just step back and tell us a little bit about Ted and where he comes from and what the influences are or have been in your life that brought you to this new project? So I did my undergraduate work at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, and they have a very unique curriculum where it's an entire four-year bachelor's degree focused on the history of math and science and philosophy. 
and everybody graduates with the same degree. There are, there are no specializations or, or majors other than the history of math and science and philosophy. And each class is conducted in a small seminar group of you know, about 20 to 25 students. And it's a really lovely experience. You, know, you study languages and mathematics and astronomy. And I sort of felt like I found the world when I arrived at St. John's, that, I, that something opened up for me there that, that I've never stopped exploring and never uh, ceased to find engaging and, and, and fascinating. And it was there where I was really acquainted with the teachers that, that cared deeply about their students. And there was just one, one person there that had a particular impact on me. I won't mention his name, but <laughs> he was my tutor. They called the professors at St. John's tutors freshman year. And we were reading Plato's Republic, which was a, which was a text that, that I found particularly fascinating. And I asked him after the freshman year if, if I could continue reading Plato's Republic with him. And he said, yeah, sure. Why don't you come to my office on Wednesday and we'll talk about the Republic. And so we started talking about the very first word of Plato's Republic on that Wednesday, at the beginning of my sophomore year. And we spent about an hour and a half, two hours, just talking about the first word of Plato's Republic, the first phrase. I, I went down to the Piraeus. And we spent the rest of my undergraduate career every Wednesday just talking about the Republic. And we almost made it through the first book <laughs> of the Republic. I benefited so much from those discussions. And in retrospect, you know, it really sort of set a model for me about what an educator, you know, can do and about how generous that that man was with his time and leading me through the first part of the Republic. And that's always seemed to sort of a model of a sort of scholar educator to be that I've held with me. After St. John's, I always wanted to continue that sort of study. So, I, so naturally, I went, I went to graduate school, but I found graduate school quite different from St. John's because graduate school is about producing research and scholarly work, which was interesting, but less interesting than discussion-based study and exploration of text, which is really what I wanted to do. I came to Austin, Texas shortly after graduate school. I went to Boston College. So did you finish a PhD there or a master's degree? I did degree? not. No, I, okay. I finished a master's degree. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I finished a master's degree at Boston College in political science. And, you know, the focus was on classic texts in the discipline. We read a lot of Plato and Aristotle and Spinoza and Machiavelli. I mean, really, really cool stuff. You know, a lot, lot, lot of fun. Made my way down to, to Austin and discovered for the first time community colleges. And at the time, I didn't really know what a community college was about. I think I had the perception of community college that I think many people at the time had where it was sort of vocational focused, but that's not what I found at Austin Community College. I found that the majority of the students there were students who were focused on completing the first two years of their undergraduate education at an amazing value <laughs> and then transferring to a four-year institution to complete a bachelor's degree in their chosen discipline. And I found so much more at community colleges. There, We had honors programs. I was able to design courses focused on political theory. The honors class I designed focused on the philosophical thought that inspired the framers of the Constitution. Designed a study abroad program where I've been able to take students each summer to Strasbourg, France, to work with colleagues and relationships I developed at the University of Strasbourg to study political science from an international perspective, you know, focused a lot on the European Union and its growth and development and how that the European Union and the US get along. And but 
perhaps the most striking thing about community colleges was the student body. So in a community college classroom, it's anything but homogenous. You have students not just diverse as regards race and ethnicity, which of course you have a lot of that, but as regards life experience. And all of that diversity together makes for, I consider, an ideal place to have a liberal arts seminar discussion. And I've taught classes focused on texts like like the Republic, for example, where in the class, I have a 85-year-old retired electronics executive having a conversation about the allegory of the cave with the sorority pledge from the University of Texas at Austin with someone that just got off like a, an all-night shift at a restaurant. You, wow. You think, yeah, I mean, yeah that's, that's astonishing. I mean, I, I hadn't even thought of that, but you really are getting... You're bringing together strands of American society when you describe a profile of students like that, that really almost never connect to one another in our increasingly kind of stratified and polarized society and culture. That's amazing. It's kind of like a New York City subway. You know, in New York City, everyone rides a subway. It doesn't matter what their class is. They, used, they used to before COVID. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's true. right. That's true. <laughs> Community colleges are very much like the subways of higher education. As far as the people that are there, it's everybody and anybody. <laughs> and it's a really exciting classroom to teach in because of that. You learn a lot. I mean, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about, you learn a lot about the country. Yeah. You know, subways are, you know, we think of them as being sort of, you know, very important and not visible. That's mm-hmm. another way that I think that community colleges bear resemblance that way because they aren't as visible as our big state university systems or you know our elite private institutions, but they are absolutely vital on a number of different levels. And what you're talking about in terms of their social function, I think is really fascinating and something we don't pay nearly enough attention to. We think of them as, you know, basically credential factories to equip people with particular skills and send them back out into the workforce. And it's all very practical, but there's a a huge social impact that you're alluding to here. It also does that too. I mean, then that's that's like another thing. It's it's sort of, it's sort of like this whole civilization. (laughs) Right. Wow. That's amazing. Community colleges as civilization. We (laughs) We need to follow up on that idea. We do events from time to time with the great questions project. And we always try to use as much as possible, and it usually is fully possible, all of the resources available at Austin Community College to run our events. So to run the pro- whatever program we're, we're doing. So, you know, it's in-house sound people, students that are working the soundboard for a lecture. The website was designed by a spice. So we, we ran a competition to design our website and we went to a visual communication class and we had the web design project be a part of the final project for an upper sophomore level visual communication class. And they, they did pitches and it was, we were talking about the books that we were reading in the program and, and what the program was all about to be communicated to the world and got to work with the students on, on the, it was, that's a really cool thing about the institution. You know, one thing I'm really loving about this interview right now is the birds in the background. I think that's highly symbolic of what we're talking about here, which is, the integration of all types of knowledge and experience into education rather than thinking of it in silos. So that's great. So talk about the Great Questions Foundation and its mission. The Great Questions Foundation 
is a 501c3 incorporated initially by faculty at Austin Community College to help advance the mission of liberal arts education at community colleges. We believe that the liberal arts, it's essential to have the liberal arts have a robust presence at U.S. community colleges, in part because, you know, we're talking before about the, the, the impact of community colleges on the country. I mean, we have something like 44% of undergraduates are taking classes at community colleges. And the number of bachelor's degrees awarded in the United States is something like 49% of bachelor's degrees are awarded to students who have taken some, at least some classes at a community college in their undergraduate career. Now, when you consider a major in business administration, for example, who may start out at a community college, they do their first two years of core curriculum coursework at Austin Community College or, or anywhere else, that's likely to be the only opportunity they have to really engage with the liberal arts. Because once they transfer to the business administration program at the University of Texas or Texas State or wherever they happen to go, they're going to be focusing on more specialized courses in business and economics and statistics and other skills-based classes necessary for their degree. If they don't have an opportunity to be in a seminar discussion focused on core texts at the community college in their freshman and sophomore year, they've lost that opportunity. And added to that, the student who is coming to the community college for a credential in business administration to qualify them to work in a clerical position in an office will not likely have that opportunity again to do core curriculum coursework. Let me stop you there and just ask, sure. why is it important? I mean, who cares? Why does it matter whether any student, community college or somebody in college or university, have this experience of discussion-based, text-focused, small group learning? Oh, it's important for so many different reasons. I'm going to focus on sort of the bigger, the bigger one first. We live in a representative democracy that requires a high level of active civic engagement, understanding, participation. And those are skills that aren't developed in a skills-based discipline like computer science. If you're a computer science major and you're learning how to code, you're not necessarily also learning how to engage with people across various dif differences, to speak clearly, to reason effectively, to read carefully and critically, to put your words on the page in a persuasive way. And these are the skills that you acquire in a liberal education. These are the skills that a liberal education helps you to acquire. So I don't think that we can have a vibrant representative democracy if students do not have the skills to engage with each other across, across differences and hear arguments, listen to them carefully, put their own views of the world out there with clarity. So, I mean, I, I think we see that deficit pretty clearly demonstrated on a day-to-day -day basis. In our political life as a country, you know, the capacity for critical thought paired with the capacity for engagement across differences, right? We get quite a bit of the critical thought, but the, the engagement part, we kind of skip over. 
you know, the capacity to engage across differences using reason and a sense of a shared reality is one of the big impairments that we that we're currently facing. So there's a very what you're suggesting here is that there is a, a critical groundwork that gets laid through these types of programs that it's hard to get if you just focus on kind of the technical side of education. I agree. Our tagline on our website for the Great Questions website at, at Austin Community College says to inspire a respect for truth. And I think that that is one of the larger goals of liberal education to get students to understand that these academic disciplines are all ultimately about the same thing, understanding the truth of the universe in which we live and our relationship to it and how we should engage with each other. Mathematics is seeking truth just as biology and the humanities and political science and, and history. And I think that a liberal education tries to erase the distinctions between disciplines through the focus on truth. So you said that you wanted to start with that big idea, and then there was a second idea, which I imagine is also big, but big, <laughs> big in a different way. So what was the second idea? So the second idea is, is that you do learn really useful skills in the, mm. liberal, in the liberal arts. So, you know, there's what to some might, might seem sort of in a pie in the sky focused on truth. You know, I think that that's, that's the most important thing. But you also learn how to write well. You also learn how to read something complicated and summarize it in a few sentences to somebody that you need to. I mean, we hear from employers that there's no shortage of people who can code well. But there is a shortage of people who can work well in a team. You might have people that are, that are highly skilled in a certain area, but that they don't have the sort of social and maybe even emotional skills and cultural awareness to interact well in, in groups. I'll just echo that. I mean, all the survey data of employers affirms what you just said, you know, like when you ask them for a list of the top 10 things that they think they need in employees and are missing in many of their employees, eight of those are going to be unrelated to technical competency. They're going to be about communication, teamwork, reason, critical thinking, the ability to connect across, connect knowledge across domains is a huge one. And those are all things that our educational system, especially at the university level, but I think it's also true below that, secondary and other four and community colleges is to segment knowledge and treat each thing as a discrete standalone rather than looking at how different domains work together. And of course, logic and reason and persuasion kind of overarching all of them to create a person who's able to contribute meaningfully on the job. Yeah, a liberal education helps you get there. Okay, so we've kind of outlined everybody needs this because it's integral to being part of a democratic society. And there's a skills component to this learn this way of learning, which better equips you for economic participation, social participation too, but economic participation. Okay, so we've got those down. And that's sort of the foundation of the Great Questions Foundation. That's what you're you're aiming at. So what is the Great Questions Foundation trying to do at a practical level to fill that vision? Okay. So our focus right now is 
on the redesign of core curriculum courses that are required for students at community colleges in many of the big degree plans. Like, for example, if you get a degree in anything at a community college, you're likely to take an English composition class. It's likely to be required. If you're taking biology or computer science or, you know, I mean, you name the discipline, you're going to have to take an English composition class. You're going to have to take a social science class. You're going to have to take an American government class. These sort of big high, high enrollment, just give us what high enrollment means. So in the context of something like American government at Austin Community College, you know, this would be about each semester will have three to 4,000 students taking Introduction to American government. So, you know, we're, we're talking about eight, well, including the summer. I mean, we're talking about potentially 10,000 students in an academic That is just year. astonishing. I mean, it is, it's, really, it's really, really huge, yeah. right? So those are the classes that we're looking at to try to support curriculum redesign. That's trying to focus those classes away from a lecture textbook-based model to a core text discussion-based model. And what we're doing initially this summer is putting together a team of 10 individuals, nine of whom will represent different community colleges, and one of whom is the graduate programs director at St. John's College, to develop a web-based resource that lists a hundred transformative texts that community college faculty will identify this summer as really important for early academic engagement, and that can be used to form the basis of study in high enrollment core curriculum courses. So what we'll do is we'll compile the the list of texts, and then each text will have its own page that will describe, in summary, what that text is about and which great questions are raised by that text and which disciplines would be appropriate to study that text in lower division core curriculum course context. Okay, so, so give us just a one or two examples. Okay, sure. I'm going to choose Plato's Republic because I love Plato's Republic. <laughs> it, sounds, yeah, it sounds like you know Plato's Republic pretty well. So. <laughs> well, let me, let me choose some other examples then. We had been doing some work here at ACC to try to investigate texts that we weren't as widely familiar with from cultures and traditions other, other than, the, than, than the Western tradition. And so, you know, we've, we've been reading selections from the Ramayana, from some Islamic political thought. We read the Sudanyata, which is a Malayan epic. So, you know, let's say a text like the Sudanyata. This could be a text that may form the basis of introduction to humanities class where a student could read the epic of the Sudanyata and raise questions about, you know, what does it mean to find your way in the world? What one of the protagonists has to understand, you know, who he is in relation to his destiny. The websites will help faculty see how that text might be embedded into a syllabus that they teach in an introduction to humanities class. Or Euclid's elements could be a component of an introduction to mathematical reasoning class. And we would have questions that would support the study of Euclid's elements and sample syllabi that would include Euclid's elements in an introduction to mathematical reasoning class. And the, the website would be designed so that you could search based upon disciplines. So if you were a history faculty member, you could 
quick history and there'd be texts would unfold from that search that would be appropriate to core curriculum courses in history. Or you could search by the larger great questions that will identify what is justice and what are the texts that deal with questions of justice. You can search this based upon time period too. If we're looking for texts in the Renaissance, we could focus on that. Now, the list, you know, with, with only 100 texts, we see this as a starting place. It will be sort of the focus of the course redesign efforts going forward so that we'll have institutes in the future where community college faculty will come from a variety of different institutions to study the texts on our site more deeply and leave from the institute with a redesigned syllabus focused on a discussion-based exploration of those texts. So we've had previous conversations, you and I, about some dimensions of this that I want to explore a little bit, one of which you just alluded to, which is this bringing together, this gathering of teachers, professors to learn how to do this, as well as, if I recall correctly, you talked about sort of kind of the burnout of people who are instructors trying to teach content and kind of losing their own love of learning in the process. And this is kind of a way to reinvigorate that. Do you want to explore that or talk about that at all? Just like, yeah, sure. Th- yeah. This, isn't, this isn't just about the students. It's about the students and the teachers. Well, if you have a faculty member who has been teaching from the same textbook for two or three decades, which happens, <laughs> and has been delivering the same lecture for about as long, that becomes as boring and repetitive as Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. You know, it's just a different version of that in the context of a college classroom, just recycling the same lecture over and over again. There are some faculty who feel that they aren't free to lead a discussion-based class, a largely discussion-based class. So part of this effort is empowering faculty to take hold of their freedom that they have as higher ed faculty to teach courses in the way that they feel are appropriate, given the learning objectives that they have to cover. We can teach most of our learning objectives in a discussion-based environment. We don't don't have to have this didactic, lecture-based, textbook-focused approach. So yes, we want to improve the learning environment for our students. We want to make that experience for our students more meaningful for them, but we also want to make the teaching environment more meaningful for for faculty. And have you found them to be open? Certainly. uh, To this approach of let's get away and let's spend some time kind of relearning how to teach and how to appreciate our subject matter. So, yeah, I would say see the subject matter in a new light. A lot of times I hear from faculty that have gone through our our training sessions at Austin Community College. So they, I feel like I'm in grad school again, or I feel like I'm a student again. This feels really great because we have these interdisciplinary training sessions where we teach people to lead our great questions, humanities course, which fulfills the student success course requirement at Austin Community College. It's a really wonderful, wonderful class. And faculty, we've had almost 80 faculty members go through our training at this point uh, over the course of the last you know, two and a half years. And that's, that's quite a lot of faculty members. It's a six-week training and it's two hours every week. It's a, it's a substantial investment of your time. 
it reminds me actually of the time that I've spent on campus observing things at St. John's. And I see a lot of, not exclusively, of course, but a lot of gray hair among the faculty, you know, people mm-hmm. who have been around for quite a while, some of them decades and decades at St. John's doing this. And I have to say that one of the characteristics of the faculty is that they seem to be eternally youthful internally, you know, like people who are, they can be in their 80s or 90s even, and yet still have this avid appetite for life and for engagement with students and engagement in knowledge, which I think is kind of astonishing. Yeah. We're working now to to expand our efforts at Austin Community College beyond our introductory student success humanities course to include great questions, courses, and other disciplines. And I'm leading an effort this spring that's going to go through the summer where faculty are, are working to redesign other core curriculum courses mm-hmm. at, at, at ACC focused on transformative texts in a discussion-based environment. And we have you know faculty from the humanities, of course, but we also have a mathematics professor who's redesigning a class, a sociologist who's redesigning a class, a drama professor who's redesigning a class. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one of the really, really fun things we're going to do this summer is, so each of them are going to select a text that they'll read in its entirety with their students in the fall. And so these classes will be taught in, taught in the fall. And this summer, our institute, the faculty will be reading these texts together and talking about how to teach them from an interdisciplinary perspective. So, you know, the math- mathematics professor, <laughs> the drama person, the sociologist, the humanities folks, the, the English faculty like, will all be reading the texts chosen this spring to be taught in these classes in a sort of discussion reading group this summer and writing the discussion questions collectively that the faculty will be using with their students. And that's just going to so, be such a, such a rich experience. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, one of the questions that comes to mind about this is that it really demands quite a lot of patience, what you're describing. It demands a lot of patience, not just for students, although I think it does require patience from students to slow down their education and go deep into their education. But it also seems like you're asking a lot of the institution to invest all of this time into rethinking in a deep way the the way that they're approaching this. Do you ever run into impatience, either among instructors or administrators or people kind of asking the question like, you know, why are we doing this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we have the incredible good fortune of having received a grant from the Teagle Foundation at Austin Mm -hmm. Community College to support this work. And it would have been impossible for us to get to the place where we are without that external support, both because the resources were necessary, but also the, I think the external validation from the Teagle Foundation was really helpful for our administration to see, ah, okay, maybe they're onto something. When we started this, it was the you know, proverbial lone voice and the crying in the wilderness. And I ran a two-year pilot program where it was every, I think it was Thursday evening, I met with a group of volunteer students to read the text, start designing the curriculum for the first year seminar, student success version of this with different different group each year, and then collected data about their persistence and 
GPA and tried to draw some anecdotal conclusions about the impact of a course like this. And, you know, we were able to get some reasonably decent data with a number of caveats because of the size of the group. And it was because of that two years of engagement with the students and with all of the other faculty members that we brought into this process that we were able to be successful. One of the really unique things about this project is that it is completely faculty-led and designed. It is not an administrative concept that then is implemented by faculty, which tends to be the case for a lot of community college initiatives. This is a is completely faculty-led initiatives. And one of the things we want to do with the foundation is we want the foundation to be able to provide that independent support to faculty members at community colleges so that they can go about redesigning their course with the support of the foundation and that they don't need to be concerned with having a complete administrative revolution within their own institution, that they can accomplish this revolution on their own, in their own classrooms and working with colleagues that want to be involved in this effort with them. That's kind of one of the unique approaches that the foundation has, the focus on supporting faculty individually and not necessarily institutions. Well, that leads me to my next question is, where do you see this going now? I mean, you've done this very intensive work at Austin, and it's taken you know significant investment of time and energy, money to build up the momentum that you've got. Where are you trying to go with it? Well, as I said before, I think it's absolutely essential that this type of education, specifically you know, liberal arts discussion-based education focused on transformative texts, it's essential that it be successful at community colleges. I see this as a civic mission in that light. And I think that if it's going to be successful, we need to help redesign core curriculum courses. And the ultimate goal of the foundation is that in the next 15 years, to make it possible for half of community college students to complete at least six credit hours of their core curriculum in discussion-based classes focused on transformative texts. Do you have partners in other community colleges that you're working with? Yeah. On our board, we have faculty from the CUNY system. Uh, they're a very large community college, the huge community college yeah, in the city area. Biggest, I think. Yeah. Faculty members from smaller institutions too, like Wright College in Chicago. We are working with faculty members in community college, Onondaga Community College. It's out of Syracuse. If you go to the website tgqf.org, you'll see a list of our of our board of directors. Also on our board are Tudor from from St. John's on our board, uh, Roosevelt Montas, who is the former director of the core curriculum at Columbia University, is on our board too. And we try to put together a team that can that not just reflective community college faculty, but people who are deeply engaged with core texts study and can help us advise the organization about how we can get to where we want to be. I think it's extremely important for the country that this effort or an effort like this is successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I think, yeah, for all the reasons that we talked about, I think this is a vital and challenging work that needs to be done. And I know that there are a number of people, you among them, who are pressing into this and trying to figure out how we sort of climb this, this mountain. And that's what it is. And it's going to take time and a lot of effort. Ted, thank you so much for taking time out to talk about this with the audience that follows this podcast. 
Where can people learn more if they want to about this project, about you, about what's happening in Austin? Where should they go? Well, the foundation website, www.tgqf.org, is the website for the 501c3. And for the work that we're doing at Austin Community College, great resource to learn more about that is austincc.edu backslash the great questions. Terrific. Are you on social media anywhere that people can follow you? I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) We need to remedy that. (laughs) I've I've wanted to avoid being involved in social media. (laughs) Well, thanks again. It's been great being with you and learning more about this project. And we'll have you back on again in the future to sort of see how it's going. Wonderful, Brett. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.